0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit CAC.org.
1: Greetings, uh, I'm Jim Finley.
0: And I'm Kirsten Oates.
1: Welcome to Turning to the Mystics.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics. We had so many wonderful questions from our audience that we decided to add in a bonus episode focused around particular topics of suffering, depression and the dark night. And I'm thrilled to say I'm here with Jim, but also Mirabai Starr is with us, who joined us in our introductory episode and has a a deep history with St. John of the Cross. So welcome, Jim. Welcome, Mirabai. Thank you, Kirsten. And we had a lot of people from the audience asking us to reflect on or asking you to reflect on the difference between depression and the dark night. And I've even heard it suggested that because depression wasn't a a term back when when St. John of the Cross was alive, did he just mean depress- depression if he was alive now, would he use the word depression uh, instead of dark night? So I'd, I'd love to just hear your reflections on what the difference might be between depression and a dark night.
2: Hey, Jim, do you want me to just start by reading John's words about it?
1: Yes, that would be lovely. And- I have texted mine. I bet, bet you had the same one in mind. Go ahead and read it. Yeah,
2: probably so. And then we then maybe you can just jump off of that. Okay. So this is actually my translation, which is, you know, a little different than the, the classic, but um, pretty, pretty literal. In The Dark Night of the Soul, in Chapter 9 of Book 1, uh, which is the Night of Sense, he says, one of the signs that this dryness indicates the passage into purification is that while the soul finds no pleasure in the things of God, She does not find consolation in any created thing either. I'm sure this is what you picked out too, Jim. Since God has placed the soul in this dark night to dry up and purify her sensual thirst, he he no longer allows her to taste sweetness or delight in anything whatsoever. You can tell that such aridity and bitterness is probably not the outcome of some recently committed transgression or imperfection, because if it were, the sensory part of the soul would be drawn to indulge in something besides divine things. When the appetite relaxes into some imperfection, the soul immediately feels inclined toward that thing, either a little or a lot, depending on how attached she has grown to it. Another indication of the true purification is that the memory is carried constantly back to God with a depth of caring that is actually painful to the soul. She thinks that she must not be serving God, that she's backsliding because there's no sweetness left for her in divine things. It is clear that this kind of aversion is not the fruit of laziness or apathy. If it were, the soul would not care so deeply about whether or not she is being of service to God. There is a significant difference between spiritual aridity and general apathy. Apathy is informed by laziness, a weakness of spiritual will, devoid of any concern about serving God. But purifying dryness holds within itself a longing, a passionate concern, and grief about not serving God. And then there's just one little extra piece I think is relevant. He says... Even though this aridity might be intensified by accompanying melancholia, which I did translate as depression, melancholia, which was kind of a generalized term for mental imbalance and all kinds of things, uh, depression. So even though it might be accompanied by depression, it does not fail to have a purifying effect on the appetite. The soul is stripped of the distraction of all pleasures, and her attention is centered on God alone. If it were merely a matter of foul humor, it would lead to nothing but disgust and the ruin of the soul's nature. She would not be burning with the desire to serve God that accompanies true purifying dryness. At the same time that this purgative aridity evaporates all sweet juices, causing the sensory part of the soul to turn feeble and come crashing down, the spirit has quietly grown ready and strong.
1: Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to back up and speak in our language today about depression and then see where our understanding of depression relates to or touches on the, the quote that Mirabai just read on John of the Cross. Like how do they, what, what's a different language? What distinctions are we making here? So I want to start first by saying first that that depression is, um, uh, is, is, is a psychological symptom that causes suffering. The characteristics of depression, clinical depression, one are vegetative signs, which is disturbance in sleep or appetite. Either you can't get to sleep, or you wake up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep, or you want to sleep all the time, or loss of appetite, you, you lose your appetite, you don't want to eat anymore. One of the major, one of the first things to ask someone with major depression is how much weight have you lost? So there's vegetated signs of being always tired, exhausted, can't sleep, but there's also an agitated depression, like restless, nervous energy. There's also feelings of worthlessness, and feelings of utter isolation, and a loss of hope. You can't see any way out of it. Depression can be mild, dysthymia, like a mild depression. It can be uh, a epi- depressive episode. Also, you can be uh, you can be genetically uh, predisposed for depression. If you're having a mother or father is depressed, you're more likely, too, that you might be depressed. Um... Major depression is serious because there's a high correlation between major depression and suicide. It's also directly related to other somatic disorders and to cancer, heart disease, and so on. So it's really uh, the the two main things are in people, in us and our vulnerability. Some carry it mainly as anxiety and some carry it mainly as depression. So uh, also sometimes it's resulted from unprocessed trauma. Uh, can re- cause depression. It can also result from unprocessed grieving. It was a major loss and you don't go through the bereavement process and you get stuck in a depressive state. So this is depress it's a kind of a big thing, you know, a person has to uh, like that. Another way of looking at it to broad it's a Broadway is it's a response to loss. Loss of wholeness, loss of intimacy, loss of hope, loss of feeling normal like that, and you can't shake it. You can't, you know, and so then there's different treatment modalities for depression. So let's say that's clinical depression for us. I think a place where most directly also meets St. John of the Cross then, because he didn't use this kind of language, is when he's giving the three signs of you're being led to the dark night in prayer in the Ascent of Mount Carmel um, of Book Two, on the three signs. He's he's going through the three signs of the dark night. And he says, you have to also be sure, this starts relating to the quote that Mirabai read, whether this is the dark night or not. He said, because maybe there could have another cause. One could be lack of fidelity to God or uh, the commitments in your life. And so So he's maybe that's the reason it's not going well. When you present your gift to the altar, put it down, go make amends with your brother, your sister, come back. The gift will go better. And so you check it out. And you go, no, no, more, no more sinful than usual. I don't think that's it. You know, I think I'm still, it's just me. See? Then he says, the second one is this. You could have a humor in your bile or in your brain. And that's clinical, see. And therefore what you need is a walk around the back, a block, a back rub, a cup of tea, you know, see what you can do to kind of shake it loose. And uh, uh, so it touches, and so it's teasing it out and discerning, because then we get into the dark night for John of the Cross and the, the text that Mirabi led, because now it has to do with the, I think most directly for John of the Cross, it's this way. It's the one, it's the loss of, of a customary sense of the felt presence of God in your life. It goes even deeper for John of the Cross in that you were given a touch of oneness. That as you were given, there was a moment of unmediated oneness with God. That was so sweet or so celestial that having tasted it, life without it is forever incomplete. And you're powerless by your own finite abilities to consummate the longing. So it's a kind of a sweet gift which gives rise to self-doubting. So in the text that Mirabai led, he's trying to help people. I like contemplate the spiritual direction. Let's tease out things here and make some distinctions like this. So that would be my response. Uh, mm-hmm. to yeah. hey, by the way, too, you could be both. You could be in the dark night and depressed. Lucky you, double header. By the way, if you were prone to depression and going through the dark night, could your dark night trigger your depression? It could. But you don't get someone in the dark night Prozac, see? And you don't tell someone a major depression to read John of the Cross. So we're talking about the discernment, how the psychological and spiritual touch each other in our life. Go ahead, Mirabai. I'm sorry.
2: No, no, that's beautiful. And um, there's a, a book I love called A Hell of Mercy by Tim Farrington. Mm -hmm. That it's a very slim volume and it's a beautiful, um, I was going to say distinction, but it isn't. It's a beautiful blending of the gifts of depression and the dark night of the soul and the way they connect. So I highly recommend it. A Hell of Mercy, a meditation on depression and the dark night of the soul by Tim Farrington. Um, I was just thinking Jim about discernment as you were speaking and how Teresa Vavila too, in, in the book of my life, you know, which is really a response to the Inquisition insisting that she document all of her kind of unorthodox visions and voices and locutions and, and so on. And, and her response to the investigation was, was more or less, you, you need not bother, dudes, in investigating me because I have already subjected all my experiences, each one of them to the laser of my own inquiry process. You know, she had a very fine, very discerning mind. And, and she was always examining all of her experiences, asking herself the question, is this a gift from God? Is it a trick of the devil or is it, a uh, an artifact of melancholia, or in other words, mental imbalance. And she was willing, like a good Buddhist, to be true to whatever the answer was. But she used a criterion, as you know, Jim, to determine whether or not her experiences were gifts from God or, or uh, manifestations of some kind of imbalance. And that was, did it enlarge her heart? with a greater capacity to love God? And if it did, that was her answer. This was a gift from God. And I think John is saying the same thing in this passage that I read from The Dark Night of the Soul. Tell me if you think this is this is resonant. And that is that the the sign of a dark night versus mental illness is that it is accompanied by a deep longing, a deep longing for God, a passion for God, even. And it's painful, but it, ha- it has this underlying sweetness that you speak about, Jim.
1: I-, I like too, John the Cross says, and Teresa says this too, about the longing, the aridity. She said, here you are in this powerlessness to consummate these longings. Which deepens your dependency on God, who's the author of these longings, drawing you out beyond the contours of your own powers. And she says, at one level, uh, you know, um, she says, but if you had a, if you could choose, and she said, you can't, but if you could choose to go back to the good old days when you were so holy, everything was fine, or this aridity, you choose the aridity Hmm. because there's an un, felt depth of solace or an, un, an un, ex, inexpressible depth of a sustaining guiding intimacy that's leading you on in ways you don't understand. And you can feel the immensity of it, which yeah. requires you accepting your poverty to understand because your ability is finite. And so you're entrusting yourself over to being led unexplainably. Uh, through this purifying process and trusting it'll reach a tipping point where the effulgence of that blessedness will come kind of rolling through you after you've been weaned off your dependency on circling back for finite affirmations in the face of this infinite love that's taking you to itself.
2: And it seems that that's such a beautiful message for all of us, especially in these uncertain times, that even though we're conditioned to tense up against uncertainty and aridity and emptiness, we are also invited to just be with it. If we can actually show up for it and not run away, that's when we get to at least access that effulgence you speak of. But, but our culture, everything, even religion, conditions us to push it away.
1: I want to share something here too, where also this touches suffering. And for us, like the pandemic, and I want to say it also just working with trauma, people in trauma. I think when people are in the midst of trauma, there's uh, the person working with the person is always trying to help them keep a certain balance. One, safety first. You know, we're talking about how to feel grounded enough that you're not at risk in your life. There's a disability, and you're cultivating inner resources to cope with what's going on, resources to deal with what you need to deal with. There's all of that. There's all of that. Secondly, along with it, is realizing that in the process, you're not in charge. That is, you cannot, in some clever way, Just walk right through it. But somehow you got to lean into it and let it unfold moment by moment, dream by dream, tears by tears, sharing by sharing. And it sifts you like wheat. As you stay with the process, you realize something's happening to you. Furthermore, as you go through the process, you realize an unexpected grace is welling up out of the painful journey. And you're learning something about compassion, about grace, About an inner peace not dependent on the outcome of our efforts. Uh, About tender heartedness. And so you end up getting more than you bargained for. In the spiritual fruits of the healing journey. You know, you come away with something that uh, no one can ever take away from you.
2: Beautiful. Yes.
1: Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment.
0: Can I ask a question about uh, what the dark night might feel like in the body? So Jim, you were talking about um, very clear signs of depression, like that sped up, anxious feeling or the, the slowed down, tired feeling. It, does the dark night have, have sensations like that or is it different? It, it, it,
1: it, it, uh, different? I'll answer For me, it's, I, I think first of all, I'm, I, think I, I tend to be very calm by nature. And I tend to be very at peace in my body by nature. I tend to be like just quietly present in my body. And I find then that when I pray, there's like the deepening of that kind of bodily presence, like a bodily presence, resting in this presence, like a, like relaxing into it. And I find that sometimes when I, I try to get quiet and rest in that, I can't find my way to the rest. Mm because I'm agitated in my stomach or sometimes I feel it in my arm. Sometimes I know my trauma is being re-triggered again by something that just happened or you know something something has a hold of me and I can't find my way to resting um, in, a, in a bodily simplicity in the presence of God. I'm this agita like that. And I, I can also know that it can trigger um, uh, symptoms, to uh, bodily pain or nausea or dizziness it really depends very personal how this happens and that could either be from the depression or the anxiety but also it could also be the somatic layers of the dark night and just leaning into it and letting it drain out like staying with it very patiently don't panic just lean into it and wait and trust yourself and stay open that kind of thing yeah
2: mm-hmm.
0: And, and Jim, in that, um, it, it feels like your, your longing for God in a way has stabilized. Does, does that change? That that sense of longing, Mirabai <laughs> was pointing to.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I, I would say that. I would say this. I would. I, 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 let's put this way, because I've been reading Bernard Larnigan getting ready for thinking Is uh, uh, I guess how I would put it is this. I think for a long time. Our longings are in intentional consciousness. You know, there's a, in reflective, intentional consciousness, I know this longing for a union that I know is real because I've experienced it. There's a certain point, I think, where, the, where I, you begin to realize that your longing is an echo of God's infinite longing for you. And God is somehow the infinity of the longing itself. And so the longing itself deeply accepted is a divinity of the consummation of those longings. You know, like that. I think it's that way. It's like, like in a certain sense, the longing vanishes because nothing's missing. Hmm. In the sense in which even if everything is missing, God's the infinity of all that missingness. God, this somehow, and yet in my human level, if something's missing, it's missing. <laughs> like, I don't like it. <laughs> there's a lot of things missing that I don't care for. It's hard. But I, I know that somehow there's a certain depth dimension of being unexplainably sustained in that which is missing, that teaches me and guides me and helps me. And it's kind of like that for me, I guess. Hmm. You know, That's to helpful to
0: hear, Jim. Thank you for sharing that. How about yeah. you,
1: Mirabai? How are you on
2: this hmm. re-
1: register for this sense of?
2: Well, you know, my namesake Mirabai, the 16th century bhakti devotional poet from India, was all about longing, longing for yeah. for Krishna, the God of Love. Yeah. And so it's in my bones, and I, I the Song of Songs has always, as it did yeah. for of the cross, just echoed in every chamber of my of my own being. So longing is my middle name and my first name, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at, you know I just turned sixty, and I, I feel like it's more like that John O'Donohue poem about grief when John O'Donohue talks about. I, I can't remember, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like at first grief is a raging fire, but eventually it becomes a warm hearth. So first it burns you and it's dangerous, but eventually it becomes a source of comfort and um, and sweetness even. <laughs> and I think that's my relationship with longing for God now. It's yeah. a heart by which I take refuge.
1: Yeah you know the irish toy I, so i love it on cloudy days here at the beach
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, there's a kind of a like a lonely cloudy unrelentingly slow mm. uh, emptiness yeah. that has about it a certain almost eternal quality to it like like homecoming
2: mm-hmm. you know uh,
1: uh, me too yeah it's like that yeah it's true mm.
0: <laughs> Well, just going back to this term, you use discernment around and particularly around suffering. Um, I know we we use the term discernment a lot of times when we feel like we're making a decision and discerning something. but so in in discerning around suffering, I guess we're trying to discern how to be with our suffering. is that Is that what they're referring to when when you're talking about discernment in relation to this kind of thing? I'll, go first. I,
1: I'll tell you what comes to mind. I will tell you what comes to mind for me about suffering. I think this is key to the traditions, really. Too is that see, in a way, we could say that this these mystical realizations of oneness. It do, it really does transcend the darkness of this world. In the midst of the darkness of this world, see, it, it, you. Know what I mean, you're it, there's a kind of an unexplainable like the eternality the fleetingness of everything intimately realized like that on up to death and beyond there's that and because it is that we could be tempted to think that once i find it i'll fly away and i'm out of here i catch you later on the other side i'm crossing over and uh, I, I did my thing and see you over there later but see the opposite is the case because one of the marks of the authenticity of this infinite union with the infinite love of God, is that we're, we're, we join God in circling back around to be present to the hurting world in a more radicalized way, which is Christ. See? So how how can I learn to touch the hurting places with love See? until nothing is left but love in myself my own prop, my own unfinished suffering that I carry in myself. I'm just a human being. In the people of the earth, is it like a heightened? And this is the relationship between mystical union and the corporal works of mercy, between mystical union and social justice, between mystical union and going on and putting ourselves, you know, in the ha- in the place of the suffering other because they, we know they're not other because we're siblings of the infinite, and uh, the world lays a claim on our heart. You know, and ways that we're providentially called to live that out in our situation. So I think this is a big question, really, too, mm-hmm. about suffering in the world and being present to suffering.
2: I think one of the hallmarks mm-hmm. of the Dark night is it strips us. It has that mm-hmm. that I don't know, powerful, potent quality of of just melting all of the extraneous concerns that. Um, don't actually matter and reprioritizing what does. And, and so when we actually enter into that stripped down state is when I think we discover our essential interconnectedness with
1: yeah.
2: all that is and each other and, and the the urge, the natural outflow of that, to be of service, to help alleviate suffering in the world, it doesn't come from some kind of charitable notion of of dispensing alms to the poor other, but rather is it is an organic um, response to the recognition of our essential oneness and interdependence. It's a it's a direct experience. It's not an intellectual notion.
1: Yeah, mm. I like in the Dark Night where he's talking about the faults of beginners. He takes the seven capital sins that he goes through. And one of the faults of beginners is this idea of loving penances and vote, like a chosen path. He said, where the true penance is dying to everything but this love. And so having died to everything but this love, you're moved from within. Uh, and you, you know what I mean? You, you can see it in the eyes of the suffering other and your heart is so opened up by this love you're so moved by the look in their eyes, or you can hear it in their voice when they talk, or you know it so well that the love moves you to be there for and with them uh, within the context of your own limitations and so on. So it's,
0: uh, yeah. Mm. That's beautiful, that's helpful. So that uh, on, the, on the other side of the dark night is uh, this sense of being connected in the way, way God's yeah. connected. To, yeah. to all all beings and to uh, to move towards suffering rather than mm. than away
1: mm. yeah we could even say the dark I'm echoing here Mirabai about this purification process what the dark night does is it it heals us from the pervasive disconnectedness that leaves us unable to realize the infinite unity between God, ourselves, others, the earth, and all living things. The dark night heals us from the imagined separateness as having the final say in who we are. And as we're stripped of, of those uh, internalized fragments, you know, we're born into this oneness.
0: You know. Do you have a sense of uh, how long a dark night lasts for someone? Is there a, <laughs> is there a time timeline? <laughs>
1: What do you think, Mirabai? I haven't. What would your
2: people ask me that a lot, and um, and so in some ways, and that I haven't quite sorted out. I feel like the very question is is a kind of um, symptom of the patriarchy. Like things need to fit into tidy categories, and you know, wham, bam, did your dark night? Check it off the list and move (laughs) on, and and that I I feel it. and that's absolutely contrary to the very essence of the dark night of the soul, which is about embracing radical unknowingness, right? And so there, there is, it's just like with grieving, there is no time frame for the grieving process. In many ways, it lasts your whole life. And But you integrate it more and more. You know, it's like learning to, to surf with the amputation. And I feel like with the dark night, it's not a one-time deal. That if we're blessed and fortunate, we will experience multiple dark nights of our souls. Because we're not, most of us are not perfected beings like a, like a, sat guru in india or a saint in the in the roman catholic tradition we are these glorious masses of humanity that are continually evolving and changing and and our capacity i think grows greater and greater for holding uncertainty and unknowingness and periods of deep aridity that where we can't know what's going on like the caterpillar inside the cocoon and we have these multiple cocoon experiences in our lives and we have multiple transfigurations you know and i recently heard about when the butterfly emerges from the cocoon it's very awkward at first it's kind of stumbling around with these things on its back going what you know what do i do with these and i think that's really true about the spiritual life it's it's this series of of r- crucifixions and resurrections and finding our new our new way and these multiple dark nights where we just get to melt into the not the not knowingness and then emerge bigger and then here it comes again i'm i'm going through a, a kind of external circumstantial period of of grave uncertainty right now and And it's like, here we are again. I've been here before, but this is new. This is a new space. But I know just enough to know that I know nothing and to be, to yield to that Mm. for now. Is that helpful at all? Yes. Oh, yes.
1: Very much so, yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I would say, too, you know, that um, kind of echoing what Mirabai just said, I guess. That's why I like this saying that uh, come to me that, that a, a butterfly is not a caterpillar with wings that it never get off the ground. <laughs> and the resurrection is not the resuscitation of a corpse. Mm. And um, and so when the butterfly first amuses, emerges, it's disoriented in its butterfly-ness, <laughs> of which it is not to which it is not accustomed, see? Because we don't expect the metamorphosis to be so far reaching like this. Um. And so there's that, there clearly is that. But also there is that in us that is in a way has emerged or is emerging as the butterfly. And there's still that in us, that's still a caterpillar.
0: Mm.
1: And the part that is the butterfly that transcends the earthbound caterpillar must endlessly circle back around to be there for and with the caterpillar because we're just a human being. Mm. And when we're scared, we're really scared. And when we're alone, we're really alone. If it's uncertain, and not everything turns out well by human standards. Matter of fact, it often doesn't. See? But even if it doesn't turn out well by human standards, once once you know it, like I've been here before, see? that there's a depth sustaining me and, and, and permeating me through and through and through and through that renders irrelevant how it's gonna turn out. See? Mm. And I know that in my heart, even though in my caterpillarness I'm am scared. And that's important because we're not exempt from the human situation. You know, and that unites us with humanity, really. You know, we're one with the suffering of that our suffering doesn't belong to us. You know, we're woven into each other in our blessed suffering and freedom. And so, yeah.
0: Hmm. So I'm I'm hearing that the the dark night is n- not a one off event. It's it's a, it's once once you're kind of in that in that mode, it's a it's a it's a cyclical deepening potentially.
1: Yeah, I would say I, I would say I say that what I'm gonna say is that the dark night is a poetic metaphor for uh, a transformation of a perpetual dying to everything less than love and all the stuck places along the way. Mm. And it has its own moments, like there's series of dark, there's episodic dark nights that are situational, both psychologically, but they can also trigger the loss of the presence of God because we're afraid. You know, it can, tr- can reactivate that again. And there's that. See? And then there's the bigger picture that our whole life on this earth is one long dark night. And the light is already dawning in our hearts and has from the very first moment we were born. And you know what I mean? It's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's of an evo- endlessly evocative metaphor of uh, the divinization of the immediacy of ourselves as we are and we're um, helping each other find our way. Okay.
2: And remember, you know, John of the Cross was speaking of the paradox of the radiant darkness, right? That yeah, yeah. It's the... Brilliant light that blinds our ordinary faculties and, right. and right. falsely experience it as as darkness. So you can look at it as these periods of inflowing radiance that That's right. yeah. are, yeah, that the, the beloved knows we're ready for that that yeah. bigger experience of love. That's true.
1: He does. He does say that. And that's why I think in a way, you know how you're, you can go into a dark room, you can't see anything, then your eyes adjust to the dark? Yes. And, and your eyes can, your finite eyes are blinded by this light, the dark night. But really it's an infinite light that's blinding your finite eyes. But when you give up, you learn to let go of resisting it, see? And let it have its way with you. You learn to see in the dark, which is really infinite light. You know, you're like, you're illumined. And within mm. yourself. <laughs> like it all, yeah. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing from the two of you today is just in relation to suffering, there's there is a love beyond our suffering that we can we can find in our lives. But to uh if people are listening and they're in, in a phase of suffering, even um not being able to reach that love at the moment or feeling the depth of the suffering, um, the the even the absence of the love is a reflection of that love still being present. And, uh, and what St. John of the Cross is
2: teaching us is we can live in hope that that love is real. You can hope and you also must abandon all hope as mm-hmm. the philosopher said. And, and it's an, it's, very subtle and delicate as Jim has so I've been listening to this podcast and mm-hmm. as Jim has beautifully spoken about for John of the Cross, this whole mystical adventure is characterized in many ways by subtlety and delicacy. It's, it doesn't, it sounds so much more dramatic than it is, but mm-hmm. that there is what he calls this ineffable sweetness that begins to bubble up from the Basically, the scorched ground of our souls when we experience these periods of suffering, and and so that you have to be quiet enough and still enough to be able to access that incredibly delicate, subtle sweetness that is that love, Kirsten, that you're that you're referring to, that is underlying the fire of our suffering. If we could only just quietly give it our, our assent. That's mm. true. We have that's to true. be enthusiastic about it. <laughs> no, we that's were... true.
1: Yeah. That, or if you are, you're just having a manic episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Another thought I thought, too, is that look at um, what you've learned at this phase of your life about things that matter most. And a lot of it probably came out of times of suffering. when you're shooting the rapids and going through it, not to romanticize it or to make light of it, it's real. You need to, it's some, it can be very regrettable, really. But uh, as you come away from it, although there was immense loss, it wasn't just loss. Right. But out of the loss, you were granted something you never would have known had you not. And I also think that helps with our present losses, you know, to know that I'm just in the current phase of a loss that has within it a light that hasn't yet appeared yet and i can learn to trust the rhythms of the process i also think it's important when we're with someone who's suffering we we have to really help them to slow down
0: Mm.
1: and we have to listen to them to help them listen to themselves so they don't skim over the depths of the pain they're trying to share because the real pain is depth deprivation you know they're deprived of the depth that's unexplainably sustaining them and they're hurt, they're trying to find the words to say it. There's something intimate about these encounters with ourselves in silence or with another person or why we're so grateful when there's someone in our life that hears us, you know, someone in our, in our life that is there for us and like that. And we, we can return the favor, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think I, I have to keep being reminded over and over this uh, mystical path, where um, it's the very fine balance between effort and and grace, and how in the end it's yeah. all grace, and the effort can't get us there.
1: Yeah.
0: And how to give give over to that to that pathway. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it's true. The effort won't get you there, but without the effort, you won't get there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you were granted a taste of it without effort. But unless you freely choose to uh, uh, honor the longings, the unconsummated longings, and lean into it and seek this John of the Cross, to seek it with all your heart. Mm. And so um, those two are always in a kind of a alchemy with each other.
2: You know. Trust in Allah and tie your camel. That's right. Say that again, (laughs) Mirabai. Yeah. Trust in Allah and tie your camel. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful.
0: Well, any last (laughs) thoughts on this question of suffering, what the Dark Knight is teaching us about suffering and discernment?
2: I just want to say that I know that these questions are arising in you all from experiences of deep suffering and so i just want to express my love and care to you as you are navigating whatever turbulence and sorrow and loss and fear that you may be going through right now so deep deep bow to you and much love mm.
1: and, and i'd say too um here i say this in tandem with mirabai and um with kirsten also is that um i've been so touched by the questions and responses to this reading them and how i get to know it is that for so many years i was traveling around leading silent contemplative retreats on the united states and canada and europe several times and you can feel that communal longing in the room and you can feel the communal sincerity of people trying to honor the stirrings of something, they, they don't know where to go with. And there is the sweet suffering. How do I consummate it? I need help. But in the mixture of it is the suffering of the painful things that can happen to us sometimes. Really vile. Just uh, working with trauma. You know, the world's a, Just very painful things happen, and um, so I also sense. In your questions there's just you could just feel the the, the out the, like the the depths of your lives as human beings we're all interconnected we're all in this together like this which makes it such a gift that we can share like this so.
0: hmm. well thank you jim and thank you mirabai and i'm sure uh our listeners will be thrilled to uh have had this little extra time reflecting on saint john of the cross and a
2: little bonus to the season. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kirsten, for creating the the container for it. And Jim, it's always such a joy to be with you. Mutual. Thank, thank you. you. Kinship, yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon.